Welcome to Insurance Uncovered, the first property casualty insurance podcast. We bring you perspective and insight on top issues facing industry professionals. Insurance Uncovered is produced by the National Association of Mutual Insurance Companies. Hi, everyone. I'm your host, Kathy Imus. Today, we're uncovering the National Flood Insurance Program. The amendment one congressman is pushing in hopes of saving the program from further debt. Bad faith gets a pass in New Jersey. How the bill could harm the insurance industry and what NAMIC is doing to fight back. And taking a deeper look at corporate governance. Attorney Kevin Kinross unpacks the new disclosure requirement that is already affecting property casualty insurers. But first... Though not quite two weeks into the 2018 hurricane season, lawmakers in Washington are refocusing on reauthorization of the National Flood Insurance Program. Time is running out as Congress has only until July 31st to vote on another extension. We spoke with New Jersey Congressman Tom MacArthur about the current status of the bill and the unique feature he designed to help save the program money. But I think it's critical that we... Uh, renew the program which is set to expire on july 31st and in the in the bill that we've uh, passed out of the house and is now over the senate uh, we did something that is pretty different for an insurance program i I made an amendment a proposal that was accepted that we doubled the pre uh, disaster mitigation uh, coverage from thirty thousand to sixty thousand dollars and we authorized the director of the flood program to pay those amounts in advance of a loss if it was felt that uh, the, the mitigation efforts would reduce uh, future losses and actually save the program money. So it was a, it's a pretty unique uh, feature, but I think it has the ability to not only have communities invest in Uh, disaster planning and mitigation, but actual individual homeowners might have resource to lift their homes or add flood vents or do the myriad of other things that can help uh, prepare for a storm. Another important component of the NFIP is its emphasis on strong building codes. Jimmy Grandy, NAMIC Senior Vice President of Government Affairs, spoke with Fox 24 News in Charleston, South Carolina, about the benefits of pre-disaster mitigation. So now that we're in the thick of hurricane season, uh, God forbid anything should happen, but if it does, what should people expect on the back end now that uh, there's been all this work in Washington, D.C. to get politicians and the government on board to help homeowners in future situations? Really, this is going to have to be a, a grassroots movement of consumers around the country uh, demanding safe, strong homes. That's how it's going to work. What what we've been able to do in Washington was convince them, instead of just spending all of the money on the back end, was to create incentives. The incentives are really there for state legislatures. We, where we need now state legislatures across America to act and to make sure that they're keeping their model codes current. Right Last year in the South Carolina legislature, there was an attempt to roll back how often they would update their codes from three years to six years. Well, science develops quite rapidly today. So delaying the code adoption from three years to six years would mean that homes would get built to a subpar standard, that it could be built stronger. So we really, the message for consumers is when you're building a home 
or if you want to find out if your current home is strong, you need to ask the right questions. You need to demand that your home is safe and understand what safety means in a home. Because it's not enough to say the last storm didn't take out my house, so therefore it must be strong. South Carolina is among the better states when it comes to building codes. In its latest report, the IBHS ranks the state as third behind Florida and Virginia as having some of the toughest codes in existence today. Last week, the House Financial Services Committee voted to advance NAMIC-backed legislation that would reform and refocus the Federal Insurance Office. The bill would place important guardrails around the FIO by eliminating its subpoena and information-gathering authority. Instead, it now requires the FIO to achieve consensus with state regulators, and it rehouses the office under the Office of International Affairs at the Department of Treasury. Now that the bill has been advanced by the Financial Services Committee, NAMIC will continue building momentum for it to be considered on the House floor. Also last week, the New Jersey Senate passed the so-called bad faith bill. NAMIC opposes that bill for several reasons. First, it would establish a cause of action for unnecessary delay or unreasonable denial of claims under an insurance policy. The bill specifically indicates that there would be no need to show a pattern or practice of delay or denial, and it would also allow for unreasonably high damage awards. We spoke with Kate Paolino, NAMIC's regional vice president, about what the next steps are for the industry. On June 7th, the New Jersey Senate voted on S-2144. The tally was suspenseful as some legislators were slow to make their votes, but it passed 21 to 14. When you consider that 21 voters are needed, 21 votes are needed for a bill to pass, you can see that this was close. But obviously, the legislative process would require both chambers to pass the bill. From here, as the Assembly considers its companion bad faith bill, A3850, a coalition which includes NAMIC will oppose it. The foundation for that opposition has already begun through the work done by industry to understand and communicate the concerns in the Senate. In addition to the Milliman Research, NAMIC's domestic trade partner, the Insurance Council of New Jersey, played and will continue to play an integral role in coordinating a robust campaign on the issue. To understand the potential impact of the bill, the Property Casualty Trade Associations hired Milliman to conduct a study. You can read that research by going into the NAMIC member advisory page and clicking on the June 8th New Jersey article. Corporate governance is a hot topic among insurers these days, with 22 states having now adopted the CGAD model and a 2020 deadline for it to become an NAIC accreditation standard. In today's Unscripted, our Chuck Chamness sits down with insurance consultant and attorney Kevin Kinross to discuss how CGAD has already impacted property casualty insurers. All right, well, thank you for joining me today, Kevin. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So you have extensive background working with our industry, with mutual insurers. You've done a lot of work with NAMIC over the years, and we appreciate that. And there's a lot of topics we could cover in the next 20 minutes. Uh, we don't even have 20 minutes. We've got like 10 minutes. But let me focus on two, mergers and affiliations in our industry and then corporate governance and the impact of some of the recent changes that you know our members are, are working on and that I know you do a lot of work around. In fact, you're helping many of our member company boards kind of adapt and evolve to uh, some of the new standards. But let's start with the mergers. I mean, there have been several affiliations uh, or mergers in the last few years. A um, couple that stand out, Auto Owners and, and Concord General last year, 
Brick Street and Motorists um, to 2016, I believe. And then just recently, a couple weeks ago, we had this announcement of American Family and Main Street America uh, affiliating two mutual holding companies. So from your perspective, what do you think is uh, behind these recent mergers and acquisitions among mutuals? And um, what do you see as the outlook um, down the road? Yeah, no, it's a great question, Chuck. Thanks for having me. Appreciate being here. Appreciate the opportunity to work with NAMIC and its member companies in my practice on a day-to-day basis. Uh, it, it's interesting. I think if you look back the last 8 to 12 months and ask me what's the top three questions or comments I'm getting from directors or CEOs saying, can you talk to our directors about this? Uh, it's going to be, first, mergers, acquisitions, affiliations. What's going on in the industry? You know, What should be aware of? Is there anything unique out there that could be an opportunity for us? Uh, the second one, which kind of builds off of that, is mutual holding company conversions, trying to understand that how it could impact them. And then the third one is kind of combined as well. It's policyholder activism as well as the proxy practice. And they all kind of tie together on the governance side. And we can talk about the other two later uh, if we have time. But on the M&A side, it's really companies looking at what are the opportunities to continue to survive and grow and, and be relevant in the industry but staying true to who they are as mutuals. And you mentioned the Brick Street and Motors transaction. That was an interesting transaction because it was the first affiliation in the country that was an affiliation of equals meaning there wasn't a full-sale change of board control of either of the entities, which is the typical structure you'll find with an affiliation. Uh, so look, companies that are two financially strong companies coming up a way saying we want to diversify our product or diversify geography and then using the statutes to their advantage to uh, create a structure that will work for everyone and still maintain the cultures they were and being true to their base it is something we're seeing more and more boards look at, uh, pay close attention to. And I think the drive is they're just they're seeing so much consolidation, so much uh, money floating around in the industry. I'm wondering, you know, can they compete still with stock companies? And we know as mutuals they can. So looking at the opportunities, they can do so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you've really hit on well, a few key points there. But one is, you know, we, we see affiliations. You know, I've been around this 22 years. We we see them every year. But it's usually one company that needs uh, help. And of course, mutuals. Uh, one of the great things about the model is you can't really force a mutual to do anything. There's no analyst. There's no hostile takeover, at least by a traditional you know, stock means. So um, they have to decide that a merger makes sense or an affiliation makes sense. And as I said, in the past, it was driven by a, a weak partner that needed a partner for you know, about to face a ratings downgrade and you know, agents pressure. Um, but that's not the case here. We have these mergers of equals in some cases. You pointed to one. Um, some others that are companies that clearly have their own, um, you know, destiny uh, ahead of them um, uh, and control their own destiny. Uh, but they've decided for different reasons. Often, it seems, when I talk with them around technology, they're looking at systems, they're evaluating options, they've perhaps had an unsuccessful system conversion um, and so they're looking at, you know, what do they need, scale and scope going forward to be successful. And, of course, these companies, and we're talking about in this entire list that I've, I've, I've brought up, these are, are leading companies. These are good companies with great leadership. And, um, you know, they've decided for various reasons um, to go a different way or to, to carve a new uh, future. Um, I'm sure focused on the policyholders I mean, as they look at, 
how can they best serve their policyholders. But um, what kind of advice are you giving to these companies as they seek out uh, your counsel on it? Yeah, I think the first thing is, before you get into any sort of combination, is understanding why you're doing it. Because it truly is a strategic change in your organization. Does it make sense? Is it in the best interest of your policyholders going forward that you're looking at to this? And the second part, and it's usually the, uh, the part that's looked at last because it's hard to put a true value on it, is the culture of the two organizations. Because when you bring two organizations together, regardless of whoever the dominant party is or whether they're mergers or, or parties of equal, one culture is going to win out. And do you have cultures that work together? Because unfortunately, there have been too many on the publicly traded size examples you can look at where there weren't culture matches. And they clearly, Daimler, Chrysler, AOL, Time Warner, and go on and on. And given our industry and mutuals and how we are known for being around for so long and having such long-term existence, having this unique culture, uh, making sure that the organizations come together is critical in addition to purely financial pieces in the product or uh, geography diversification. What are the biggest uh, legal hurdles that uh, companies face in these kinds of transactions? The, the hardest, if you're going to do an affiliation of equals, along with the hardest is it new and trying to educate certain departments on insurance. What is it? Because it's not something they've seen. Uh, there are still some departments of insurance that have not had to even approve a normal affiliation. The model you've described, there's been one dominant party and one weaker party. And we had one at the end of last year where we had to um, you know, help educate the department on what this is because it's not something that's spelled out in statute. And so making sure that you're doing a transaction that when it's facing the scrutiny of your regulators that you're going to be able to show to them why it's in the best interest of the policyholders going forward and it will meet uh, all the requirements that they're looking for before they approve a Form A transaction that would approve uh, the merger or affiliation going forward. Let's shift gears a bit and talk about corporate governance. As we highlighted at the beginning, it's uh, it's an area that is evolving with respect to regulation. Um, so I guess I'll start with a basic question. Why is corporate governance so important to companies? Well, it's important because it helps us determine who we are and how we're operating and how decisions are made and who has responsibility. And regardless if you're a uh, farm mutual or you're a mutual that's writing in excess of a billion dollars in premium, you're still going to have that threshold decision who has the authority for what and who's accountable for what. And whether that, what role management plays, what role the board plays, and understanding that the board and management respect those roles and appreciate those roles. Uh, and it's something based on some of what you've seen on the legislative side, on the advocacy side for NAMIC, became a greater, a, a greater issue for the industry with the creation of FIO and after Dodd-Frank and the pressure from the international community, which led the CGAD. And now that we have the Departments of Insurance taking a more uh, detailed look at our governance practices, it's, it's an opportunity for companies to take a deeper look into who we are, what we're doing, and our practices are. But we should have been doing that anyway. I mean, governance has been around before CGAD. Governance has been around before Sarbanes-Oxley. It's a creature of state statute. It's just now getting more attention. On CGAD, um, you know, NAMIC played a key role in that the NAIC was going through the process, as you point out, uh, much of it driven by international developments and organizations like the International Association of Insurance Supervisors. Uh, and there were some legitimate reasons to pay more attention to corporate governance coming out of the financial crisis, though our industry you know, was a victim of the financial crisis and in a way caused it. Uh, there were some lessons that uh, I think regulators could learn. And so CGAD comes along, but they wanted to go kind of the easy route, which was 
let's take the disclosure and then let's also kind of put together a scorecard that regulators can easily use to measure how good the governance is. And we resisted that because, uh, particularly in the mutual industry, there are a thousand good governance models, and we do not want to be stuck in the one-size-fits-all, looks like every other you know, corporate board, and you've got a banker and a lawyer, an investment uh, professional, and a retired you know, insurance exec. It's, it's, uh, it's not necessary. And we also have constituent boards, and, mm-hmm. and you do a lot of work around some of the constituent boards uh, in our industry, like farm bureaus mm-hmm. or uh, particular industry mutuals. So that was our role back then. But for now, you know, with CGAD, what are you seeing as um, kind of key themes that are developing? Or what kind of counsel are you giving? Uh, I think I heard a little bit of your previous response that, um, you know, it's something we need to focus on anyway. And I happen to think that the disclosure itself is a pretty good process for companies to just kind of make sure everything is connected, charters are in place, things are updated. Uh, it, it has a, uh, a useful uh, purpose in, in, in some contexts. I, I couldn't agree more. I think it's a great tool right now for you to do an internal self-audit of what your governance practices are. And there may be things in that CGAD and that disclosure that you're disclosing saying, okay, we're not doing X, but can you explain why? Does it make sense why you're not doing it? And maybe it's just that's not the best practice for your organization. It doesn't fit with who we are, but can you explain it? And that's the value of it, is it's a descriptive act. It's not a prescriptive act. It's not prescribing you to take on certain governance practices, but merely to describe what they are. Uh, One of the hot-button issues is getting a lot of attention and causing a lot of stress, I think, for some of the organizations. Could be the constituency boards that you've mentioned, uh, the boards that are tied to either the farm bureaus or to specific professions, pharmacists mutual, jewelers mutual, just examples, or any profession. Uh, and how they go about populating their board, because their boards are typically populated with individuals that are made up of those professions. And my concern is that as more and more CGADs are filed and they start profiling companies, they recognize that maybe there's not a quote-unquote financial expert on the board or someone on the board with insurance expertise or technology expertise. And could that lead to additional regulation where they start pushing companies down a path that you have to have people that fit in each one of these uh, positions. And I'm not sure that's the right way to do it. I think, Chuck, there's a lot of value in having a board that is representative of your membership. And I think there's a lot of value in giving the board the opportunity to go out and hire experts should they need it. So letting the board make the determination, hey, we're dealing with a large uh, technology project that's going to cost several millions of dollars and trying to figure out is this the best for us? Letting the board engage an expert to talk to, to represent the board, to ask questions, to help be their voice on that, as opposed to taking up a valuable board seat with someone that just knows technology. Final area, you talked about policyholder activism and a rise in policyholder activism. What, what's this mean, and you know, how are you seeing this as an emerging trend? This is, this is an interesting one, and I want to be cautious when I say policyholder activism not, that I'm not talking of someone who has been a member of a mutual insurance company for years. I mean, this is the and, nature of the model. It's policyholder, yeah. you know, uh, roles and responsibilities and rights and privileges. It's part of the mutual model. But you're yeah. talking about something different. Something different. We're not talking about someone who's just trying to exercise their governance rights and participate in the governance activities of the organization. We're talking about someone that purchased a policy today with the sole intent of tomorrow trying to take action that would change the structure of the organization in a way that would be purely self-serving for this one individual. 
And it is difficult for boards to wrestle with this because of everything you just mentioned. And what steps can boards be taking today to be proactive so they're protecting the best interests of the mutual and the policyholders as a whole and not necessarily be subject to the whims of maybe one person who is looking at things for their own personal gain as opposed to the best interest of the mutual. And it's challenging weighing those things together. And the opportunities that present themselves within statute and within their governing documents to create um, requirements um, that policyholders must go to to do certain things without taking any rights away are vehicles that will help the organizations not be surprised and understand if something's coming down the way that they can fully address it and, and deal with whether it's in the best interest of the mutual or not. Last question, probably the toughest and most sensitive issue, but, uh, yeah, you're, uh, uh, you know, well thought of and a very learned lawyer, Capital Law School, but prior to that, your best academic credential is, of course, the Bachelor of Science in Finance from the Indiana University. And, uh, and yet you, you toil here in the heart of Buckeye country, Columbus. My question is, how do you survive that day in and day out? It, it is hard to wake up every day. We all have our own challenges. Yes. And, and if I can turn one person one day at a time, I, I think we've accomplished something here in, in this great state, Chuck. But we can do everything we can to fly the crimson and cream here in central Ohio. And we'll see you next year in the basketball season with Romeo and our great new coach and uh, all the – Archie saw the light. He left Dayton. He did. To come to Indiana. So He did. Archie, uh, Archie is a welcome addition in Bloomington and – We'll see you in basketball season uh, next year. And, Kevin, thank you for the time today. Absolutely. Pleasure being here. Thank you. On the next Unscripted, Chuck talks with Sean Kevelin, president and CEO of the Insurance Information Institute. They talk about industry disruptors and how insurers can prepare for big challenges ahead. Well, that's it for us today. Tell us what you think about our podcast. If there's something you'd like to hear about on Insurance Uncovered, just shoot us an email at uncovered at namic.org. And don't miss our next episode on June 27th. I'm Kathy Imus. Thanks for listening.